Well, let's continue on in Matthew 5. Turn with me to Matthew 5, 27, and we'll just read our text for this morning to begin with. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. We'll read down through verse 30. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We've been in Matthew 5 looking at the topic of authentic Christianity. The basic premise is that genuine believers in Christ seek after Christ. They desire to obey the law of Christ. They yearn for holiness. Their lives are generally demonstrating the fruit of an internal change, what the Bible calls regeneration. There were new creations. Now, the text that I just read isn't difficult to understand. It's not overly complex, but it is a sharp blade that strikes right at the heart of major sin of the Bible, and that is idolatry. And in this case, idolatry involving lust. Now, just to be clear here, the word Jesus uses, translated lust, isn't a bad word. It's not a good word. It just simply means to desire something It's a strong desire to be certain. And while the specific context of his admonition is sexual lust, sinful desire or lust has a lot of other variations as well. A married man may habitually lust after a specific woman who's not his wife. An unmarried man may habitually lust after one or more women or just the idea of a woman that he constructs in his mind. A married woman may experience Lust for a man, not her husband, but more likely this will be relational lust. The imagined sensitivity and kindness that any other man other than her husband would show. A woman may be so much in the habit of mentally and verbally criticizing her husband that other men regularly seem better to her because in her mind her husband never measures up. An unmarried woman or a man can experience lust in that they've determined to remain discontent until marriage comes, imagining that somehow that's the key to genuine happiness. How about teens? Teenagers can certainly lust sexually, but of equal or even greater concern is the lust for relationship, the desperate yearning desire for a boyfriend or girlfriend, that that's going to create happiness. And of course now we're dealing with a culture that deals with lust for the same gender or lust to not even have a gender So lust just has endless applications to it. Lust, sexual and relational, really boils down to having a sinful desire which somebody chooses to cultivate, chooses to nurture. Now, a question I ask myself as I come to this text is why would we slog through such an earthly unheavenly topic. Wouldn't it be better to think on the glories of Christ, on the hope of heaven, on the joy of salvation? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. The glories of Christ, the hope of heaven, the joy of salvation are those ideas which drive us and motivate us in our daily obedience to the Lord. So the two are actually very connected. And Jesus hits us right where we live. It's important to him, therefore it's important to us. And it's something we ought to speak openly about in the church. So here's my plan. I'm going to follow kind of a classic Puritan sermon outline. I'm just going to explain the text first. It's not complex. I'm going to give some theological implications of the text. And then we'll spend the majority of our time applying the text to two different groups, to adults and to older kids and teens. And so we're just going to follow that kind of outline. And, and I am aware that our teens, half of them are uh, up at a junior-senior retreat right now. So parents, you make your kids listen to this when they get back because I'm going to be speaking directly to them. So first of all, let me just explain the text. It's not super complex, so let me just give you a few notes. Jesus is quoting here from the seventh commandment from Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery, broadly meaning sexual activity with any person who's not your spouse. That's the basic broad meaning. But his statement in verse 28 is about the heart that's simply having a lustful attitude. This is an indirect reference to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. To covet something is basically the same idea as lust, sinful lust. And it's incredibly selfish because coveting another man's wife is not only saying, I want that woman, it's also saying, I want to deprive her husband of his wife. It implies a total willingness to to hurt others, to have what you want, to cause pain to many, many people. Certainly not an attitude indicative of a genuine faith in Christ. And then Jesus gives one of the most shocking statements related to the sin of adultery and lust. Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, obviously, this is what we call hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. Jesus isn't condoning actual self-mutilation because it doesn't get rid of sin. A blind man can lust. You could pluck both your eyes out and still have a lust problem. What he's describing is a disposition. He's describing a commitment that if you're in Christ, you have a new loyalty. You're not loyal to you any longer. You're not loyal to self. You're not loyal to what your eye wants to see. You're not loyal to what your hand wants to put itself to. Paul put it like this in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. That's basically what the text means. There are some important theological implications, and let me walk through those with you for a moment. The first theological implication is that Jesus is giving new covenant law. He's giving new covenant law. And we've emphasized this before in chapter 5, but it's worth repeating. That when Jesus quotes Moses and then says, but I say to you, he's not contradicting Moses and he's not even so much clarifying Moses. He's He's not interpreting. This is much more than interpretation of the law. What he's doing here is defining a massive transition We have a transition from Mosaic covenant to new covenant. He is the better Moses who gives the new covenant instruction to supersede Moses. 
So in other words, when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's essentially saying, Moses gave the rule of life then, but I'm giving you the rule of life now. He supersedes Moses. It's very clear that Jesus is expecting far more than just a technical obedience to the law of adultery by not actually committing a physical act of adultery. He's requiring a heart of obedience. That's the heart of the new covenant. So Jesus is giving new covenant law. There's another theological implication. The plucking of the eye and the chopping of the hand happens primarily internally. The plucking of the eye and the chopping of the hand happens internally. These are exaggerated symbols of obedience to the mind, obedience of the mind, rather. So how does the believer pluck the eye and chop the hand of the mind, of the heart? That's what we're talking about today, guarding the heart. Romans 12, verse 2, our classic text on this topic, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect, of plucking out and chopping off that which does not contribute to a renewed mind, to a purified heart. Listen, lust isn't conquered so much by trying not to lust. Lust is conquered by the renewal of the mind, the renewal of the heart, starving your mind, starving your heart of all those things that contribute to sin, and feeding the mind and feeding the heart, filling your mind with the things of the Lord, things that are good and wholesome and worthy of praise. It's a self-correction of wayward thoughts, replacing them with truth instead. So to cut off the hand or to pluck out the eye is to starve the mind of those things that lead you towards sin. And that might be different for different people. You have to know what your appetites are and starve those appetites. There's a third theological implication. There are salvation connections to Christ's statement. There are salvation connections to Christ's statement. And after all, he does reference twice the threat of hell. This is not symbolic. He's speaking of the real hell, of really going there. What he's not saying is that the Christian who struggles with lust, which is really an, an idol of the heart, is in danger of losing salvation. That can't be what he's saying. Regeneration is eternal. Jesus promised that he would not lose one that he has in his hand. What he is saying, though, is that the unbeliever who feels very free to lust after that which he desires ought to be warned that radical heart surgery is necessary, that you need heart surgery. What he's saying is that the professing believer who continues to freely lie to himself and doesn't really put up any sort of spiritual battle ought to be profoundly terrified spiritually. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really worry about lust. I don't really worry about these things. I just go where my heart leads. These are natural desires. I I want these things and therefore, no. Jesus is saying you should be terrified because you're not resembling a Christian at all. It's not that Christians don't struggle with lust. It's that Christians struggle. The non-Christian doesn't put up a fight. Now, let's delve into this a little bit more. First of all, I'd like to apply this text both to married and unmarried adults for a while. And, And I know this is a topic that is tender and sensitive, and I understand that. The principles are really the same for married and unmarried adults with one major exception. And so I'll start there. 
God-ordained sexual activity happens in the context of marriage. It's part of the relationship. It's part of the one flesh aspect of marriage. And the Apostle Paul gives a clear principle that because of the mutual belonging, the mutual ownership involved in the covenant of marriage, that neither spouse has the right to deny sexual intimacy to the other one. And if a couple, Paul says, mutually decides for one reason or another to hold off for a short time, for example, he gives the example of a, a short time of prayer, he gives the reason to make this a brief hiatus. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's the reason to keep it brief. So marital intimacy is partly to help ward off the temptation that would be there otherwise. I want to be really clear about this. It's not a spouse's responsibility to single-handedly solve the lust problem of the other. That's not their responsibility. Any more than a wife could say, well, as soon as you act right all the time, I'll stop wishing I was married to someone else. If one spouse is unmotivated, unwilling in marriage, certainly that's going to contribute to temptation. Paul says so. So there is that level of responsibility. But listen, a married couple who's extremely active sexually can still be made up of a man who habitually wishes for other women and a woman who wishes for a different husband. Sinful desires aren't solved with sexual intimacy. That is a part of the picture, but it's not solved. But other than that situation, I'd like to go through some principles that are universal in dealing not just with sexual lust, but dealing with sinful desire for anything that doesn't belong to you, anything that becomes an idol in your life. And so really we're dealing with idolatry as a whole. So let me give you some principles that apply really to to all of us. And then a little bit later, I'm going to get more specific with a younger crowd. The first principle, lust is the sinful response to believing lies. Lust is a sinful response to believing lies. Here are some typical lies about those things that we lust after. I deserve this. I can handle this. No one will ever find out. My needs are important. Or I won't ever conquer this, so I'll just give up. And I'll just keep asking for forgiveness. This is why Paul said in Philippians 4, 8, to think on things that are true. To counteract lies with what? With the truth. Paul said in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 22, that we lay aside in reference to our former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Did you catch that? The lusts of deceit. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And to put on the new man, which is the likeness of God, in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. How do you fight the lusts of deceit? With the truth. Because it is deceitful. So the first principle, lust is the sinful response to believing lies. So what's your first line of defense? Tell yourself the truth. There's a second principle. Lust is about self. Love is about others. Lust is about self and love is about others. Or to put it this way, lust is the opposite of biblical love. It's the opposite. If you're married, one of the simplest antidotes to lust, whether it's sexual or relational, is to simply intentionally show more love to your spouse. To serve and to give and to sacrifice for the other. Do it as an act of faith. 
If you're being tempted by a specific other person, pray briefly for that person. Be reminded of the spiritual condition of that person. Be reminded that you're actually using that person in your mind for your own pleasure. Be reminded that your lust will ultimately hurt not just yourself, but everyone around you. Don't be the dad that has to gather his adult kids and say, I need to tell you something that happened 10 years ago. Don't be that guy. And yes, the cross can cover all sin, but wouldn't you rather not have to have that conversation? In whatever situations you're usually most likely to toy with lustful thoughts, use that exact time, that exact situation to demonstrate tangible love for someone else. Flip it around. Whatever time you're tempted to give in to your lust, instead serve someone else during that exact time, that exact situation. Because lust is about self, love is about others. And by the way, lust can happen in the context of marriage. It can happen when you view your spouse as simply a means to your own pleasure and that's your totality of your view. Here's a third principle. Lust is wrapped up in other sins. Lust is wrapped up in other sins. I'm going to quote a couple of times Dr. Stuart Scott, his book, The Exemplary Husband, has a long and detailed chapter on lust. I would commend it to all of you because it's really about idolatry, not just about sexual lust. But it deals universally with sinful desires of every kind. But he points out rightfully that lust that's acted upon is like a snowball of a bunch of other sins. It will always involve deception. It involves secretiveness. It involves blaming others if you're caught, which means you're lying So it begins to wrap itself up in all kinds of sin and it creates emotional distance that never is really solved until that lust is dealt with. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like thick darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. One of the lies that you may tell yourself is, this won't hurt anyone. It's actually the opposite. This will hurt everyone around me. Everyone. Here's a fourth principle. Lust is an enemy with which you take no prisoners. Lust is an enemy with which you take no prisoners. This is a spiritual battle. You cannot expect it to be easy. It will likely be the most difficult at the outset. But the Bible has good news for you on this front. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You have to fight to win. You have to fight to not make any concessions. Sinful thoughts have to be forsaken the moment you recognize them and replaced with righteous thoughts and truths. This, is, this requires self-control by the help of the Spirit. It requires discipline. But we have another promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. What's the way of escape? The way of escape is always truth. It's truth. That's the fight. The the fight is internal. Lust is an enemy with which you take no prisoners. You don't just say, I think I'm going to try to barely win this battle. No, you, you, you win with overwhelming force. Here's the fifth principle. Lust is cultivated in spiritual isolation. Lust is cultivated in spiritual isolation. 
And, and just to digress for a moment, lust of all kinds is cultivated in spiritual isolation, whether it's greed for money or greed for a certain type of relationship, all kinds of lusts. It always is associated with spiritual isolation. Show me a family or a church member who isn't meaningfully connected to the body of Christ and I'll take odds that there is some secret sin plaguing that person. Dr. Scott writes this, quote, A man who wants to continue in sin will not want to be close to righteous people. He might be standoffish. When he's pressed to have a genuine conversation about his internal life, he might resort to lofty platitudes, self-aggrandizing, boasting about the richness of his spiritual life. You can't get to the real person. But what sin are you struggling with? Oh, I just confess everything to the Lord. But what's, your, what, what's the thing that I can pray for you? Pray that, that I can read the Bible more than my usual four hours a day. Well, what's the, what's the thing I really, I, I really want to help you with whatever spiritual weakness you have? No, I, I, just, I just am walking with the Lord. You can't get to him. There's secret sin there. I guarantee it. Consider Proverbs 18.1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. Then you have, on the other hand, though, Proverbs 27.17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's the opposite. Now, I want to be clear about this. It's often put forward that the, that the solution to lust is an accountability partner. Don't take this idea that having an accountability partner will somehow solve all your problems. It might help, but ultimately that's still an external solution to an internal problem. I'm talking about a lifestyle of being meaningfully connected to the body of Christ, where you're accountable to those around you. There's a sixth principle. Lust is drug-like as a temporary pleasure. Lust is drug-like as a temporary pleasure. It may become a habit to turn to lustful thoughts. And, and again, lustful thoughts can be anything. It can be, I want to have a billion dollars. That's my lustful thought. That's how I'm going to get out of the fact that I, I, I don't like the fact that my electric bill is more than I have money in the bank. It may become a habit to turn to lustful thoughts or lustful behaviors to get some small relief from the miseries of life. Now, let's take that apart. You realize what that's saying? That when I'm miserable, I will turn to sin instead of to the Lord. You do that long enough and in public enough, the believers around you are going to question your salvation. And here's the kicker. It never works. It never works. Just like the drug addict, you feel worse after you've sinned than before. You lie to yourself. Well, this is going to help me feel better. After you've sinned, infinitely worse. So what do you do instead? Psalm 62, beginning in verse 5, tells us, Surely wait in silence for God, O my soul, for my hope is from Him. Surely He is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Here it is. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. You hear this? Rock and rock and salvation and stronghold and refuge. Strength. Some of you come out of a lifestyle of having done drugs or, or been drunkards 
Some of you have been saved out of that lifestyle and you remember that that next hit, that next drink was going to make you feel so much better and afterwards you feel so much worse. Lust is is drug-like as a temporary pleasure. Here's a seventh principle. Lust feeds on idleness and selfishness. Lust feeds on idleness and selfishness. Order your life that you simply don't give the sin the fruitful opportunities that it once had. You know what I think one of the worst things to happen to the church of Jesus Christ was the advent of the 40-hour work week. There's 168 hours in a week. 40 hours is a part-time job as far as I'm concerned. We're meant to work until we fall into bed exhausted. We're meant to be about things that are heavenly. So serve more. Plan every hour of your day. If you don't wake up every morning knowing what every hour is going to be, you just said, Satan, I'd like to invite you to open my calendar and look where you would like to to put yourself in there today. Do more for those you love with regular action. Replace your most usual sinful times or situations with things that feed your soul, not drain your soul. Order your life such that you don't give sin that much opportunity. Listen to this encouragement again from Stuart Scott. How much do you want to honor Christ with your life? Are you willing to do what God requires? Determination with dependence on God is the key. You are assured victory if you practice God's principles and depend on His power. Yes, it will be hard work. Is it worth it to you? The hard work required will actually be a good detriment to turning back to sin. God knows what he's doing. Listen to this. God knows what he's doing by not zapping us out of our sinful habits. The process that you must go through and the discipline you will learn will serve your Christian growth in many ways. Did you catch that? The Lord could just zap instant sanctification. But no, he wants you to go through the process. He wants you to fight for it. He wants you to yearn for it. He wants you to pray for it. Now, I'd like to take the rest of our time and shift on this same topic less on sexual lust and more on relational lust concerning older children and teens. And I've spoken to our students on this on occasion, but when I arrived here at Matthew 5.27, I felt like this was a must to address this issue. And so I've never done this with the whole church, but I'm going to help us try to think biblically if you're a young person or a parent to one or a grandparent to one or you've got 8, 10, 12-year-olds and you know it's coming around the corner, these conversations. And again, I know a lot of them are at junior-senior retreat, but this is just how it timed out in our progression in Matthew 5. So parents, make sure they listen to this. And to help us have some discernment in this, I want to go to the Old Testament and have us turn to Song of Solomon chapter 1. Song of Solomon chapter 1 For teens and unmarried adults, these warnings from Jesus in Matthew 5 are are really highly related to the topic of marriage. Marriage is the context in which sexual desires are, are lived out properly by God's design. But our culture has has warped and twisted sexuality so much that it's really unidentifiable when compared to God's design. And, and someone might say, boy, you're, you're really preaching something that's t- 
10, 20, 30 years old. It, it bears no resemblance to our culture today. No, I'm actually preaching something that's, that's 6,000 years old. And that's where you have to go. You have to go to that original, original ethic. So I'd like to share with all of you what I've shared with our teens on occasion concerning aiming for marriage. This is about guarding the heart, keeping purity of mind, purity of heart, because all impurity, all lustful acts begin in the mind, begin in the heart. And what I've shared with teens, I've divided into three parts. These are lies, likelihoods, and lists. Lies, likelihoods, and lists. I'll spend the most of our time on the lists. But let me just go through some lies. Our culture has been lying to people for generations, especially in the past few decades, especially in the past five years. The culture has lied about the nature and sanctity of marriage. Marriage is not defined by humanity, it's defined by God. I I say this with tongue-in-cheek and a little bit of a smile, but the government issues marriage licenses. Do you know why we go by that? Because we're being polite. The government has no authority over marriage. Marriage is the purview of humanity given by God. We politely give in to that because you can't get your name changed or get a new social security card without a marriage license. Our culture has lied about the sanctity of marriage. And the same government that says that they are overseeing marriage has now redefined marriage. They don't have the right to do that. We've been lied to about biblical manhood. Now, even the idea of manhood is viewed by popular culture as wicked or wrong. That the manlier you are, that somehow there's something wrong with you. Cultures lied about biblical womanhood. That true happiness comes from trying your best to do all the things that men do. And boy, hasn't that lie turned around on them. All the feminists that have fought for the rights of women, 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 and now nobody knows what a woman is. That's a bait and switch of an epic variety. Instead of seeing what pleases God and finding the greatest fulfillment in obeying Him, our cultures lied about the nature of marriage, that marriage is like a contract where the other person needs to please me in order for me to do my part. That is not a biblical view of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. You promise to be faithful. You promise to be useful. You promise to be loyal. You promise to be a a blessing despite what the other one does. Here's the big lie. The big lie is that teenage romance, sometimes called dating, is normal and healthy and wonderful. That's a lie. The leading cause of teenage suicide is a breakup from a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Why? Because you were created to bond for life with one person. That's how God made you. And when you make relationships a plaything and you mess with that, You're messing with the most emotionally charged human relationship possible when you bond and break up, bond and break up, bond and break up, and that scene is normal. It's emotionally devastating, it's spiritually devastating, and it sets you up for an inability to bond for a lifetime. So those are some of the lies. Let me talk about the likelihoods. The likelihoods in a teenage romance. I'm going to give you eight of them. Likelihoods. It's an emotional and spiritual addiction. It's an emotional and spiritual addiction. It, it can become something you have to have to feel good about yourself. And if any of you were raised in public schools in the past generations, you knew what it was like. There were two classes of kids, those with a boyfriend and girlfriend and those poor slobs without, right? 
It, be, it becomes an obsession which you must be with other, this other person. That's not love. Love is sacrificial. Love is not selfish. It's the second likelihood. It creates an atmosphere of parents versus children. It creates an antagonistic atmosphere under one roof. Parents versus kids. Dating, by definition, is children doing something meant for adults. And so it creates an atmosphere ripe for sneakiness, ripe for lying, for dishonesty, for rebellion, where a 15-year-old is willing to defy her parents because she's just going to die if she can't see her boyfriend. It's another likelihood. It prematurely breaks up families. It prematurely breaks up families. Teenagers are meant to be with their families, not meant to be exclusively pretending like they're married to someone else. It's the fourth likelihood. It creates an atmosphere for internal and external sexual immorality to our point in Matthew 5. It creates an atmosphere for internal and external sexual immorality. Just because a teen might not be doing outwardly sexually immoral things doesn't mean that dating isn't making your mind and hormones race with desire. And unfortunately, young ladies fall prey to this and they will say, but I'm, we're just friends and we just hang out a lot. Young men don't do just friends very well. It's like giving a three-year-old a stick of dynamite and a lighter and saying, now don't do anything wrong. Here's a fifth likelihood. It teaches you to see the opposite sex as an object of your own pleasure. It teaches you to see the opposite sex as an opposite of your own pleasure. How many times... Has a 15-year-old said to her 16-year-old boyfriend, my goal in life is to learn to sacrifice lovingly for you, to give up everything I've ever dreamed of in order to serve you and to serve our children and to understand that I'm here to be your helper. How many times has a 15-year-old ever said that? I would say probably never, unless it's followed up with, and I'm way too young for that, so ask me again in about three or four or five years. Teenage romance does not form the habit of serving someone else because inherently it's about getting something, not giving. Here's a sixth likelihood. It distracts young men from positioning themselves to be men. It distracts young men from positioning themselves to be men. It takes a long time and a lot of effort for a man to be ready for this world. And a premature romance can derail him for years. Here's the seventh likelihood. It has the emotional effect of multiple divorces. It has the emotional effect of multiple divorces. Romance is not a toy. Boy-girl relationships are not toys. If a teen begins to feel she's just going to die without being uh, with a certain boy, she's going through the same emotional trauma created by divorce, all having uh, having made the commitment of marriage. Here's an eighth likelihood. This is actually not a likelihood. This is a fact. Teenage romance causes 200,000 murders every year. 200,000 abortions. Because two teens not ready for the responsibility of being adults, marriage and family, murder their child. 200,000 murders. And you say, well, it's a good thing that never happens in the church. That happens in the church. Now, all that being said, I want to be very clear. Marriage in the Bible is presented as one of the greatest blessings of God. 1 Peter 3, 7 calls it the grace of life. 
It, it, is a, it is a small little return to the Garden of Eden. It's a small little piece of paradise to two believers who are following the Lord. And so it's something to look forward to and it's something to prepare for. So when is the right time as, as it, when your 11-year-old says, I'm in love and I'm going to die if I can't see him. When is the right time? Well, the right time is when you're pretty far along the road of being ready to be married because the Bible doesn't recognize a romantic relationship that's not headed toward marriage. There is no biblical category for that. Or put it this way, if you're ready to be married, you're ready to pursue a relationship. To think any other way is to toy with spiritual adultery. So I want to do some lists. Now all of you make to-do lists. I want to give you what I call I-do lists. I want to give you first both for men and women, and then for men and then for women, or women and men, I can't remember which order they're going to go in. First, for both men and women. And notice, this is not a list for boys and girls. Because the very definition of manhood and womanhood is that you're ready to be married. That is the definition. Whether you're married or not, manhood or womanhood means you're ready. So here's, here's a list for both men and women. First one is don't awaken desire. Don't awaken desire. We're going to work our way toward chapter 1 of Song of Solomon But three times in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 8, young women are told, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't spend a long time on fantasies about the opposite sex. Don't get tricked into spending all your time dreaming about someone else. There will be a time for that, but not until you've done some of the things on these lists. It means keeping a disciplined approach about how much time is spent in long conversations with the opposite sex. It's the beginning of a slippery slope of awakening desire. Don't awaken desire. Keep a lid on it. Here's a second for both men and women. Tame your tongue. Tame your tongue. If you're still disrespectful to authority as a young person such as your parents, if you still raise your voice, if you still have to pout, if you still manipulate by rolling your eyes, making faces, you're not ready for a relationship because that won't work. That won't fly and it'll destroy other people. I like to say this to parents of of young children, save your child's future spouse from a, a, a world of misery and a life of hurt by disciplining them now. Proverbs 16, 23 says, The heart of the wise gives, in, wise gives insight to his mouth and increases learning to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. If you're unable to have basic adult conversations, if you're unable to do things like sitting down and thoughtfully repenting in humility for something you've done wrong and all you want to do instead is make excuses, then you're not ready for marriage. Because marriage, if it's anything, is a daily Reason to repent, right? (laughs) So tame your tongue. If you're unable to have basic adult conversations, then you're not ready for a romantic relationship, not ready for marriage. Here's a third thing on the I do list for both men and women. Learn and grow. Learn and grow. In other words, have something to offer. Just being a nice person. Oh, I love his personality. That's not enough. Both men and women are called in Scripture to grow and to have skills. You should be reading. You should be learning how to do things. 
develop yourself into a useful person with skills that can serve others. In Proverbs 6, 6-8, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. The first pastor I ever heard preach a sermon to young men about who to choose for a wife. He said it this way. He never pulled any punches. He said, men, don't marry Barbie. In other words, don't marry a woman who's useless and can't do anything. Here's a fourth thing on the to-do list for both men and women. Make your relationship a family event. Make your relationship a family event. Why is this? Because marriage affects everyone around you. It's not just about you. It affects everyone around you. It should be something ideally the family is involved with, not this separate world of getting to know someone your family barely knows. Parents ought to be involved. The family's involved. Why should parents be involved? Because they've been around long enough to know if you're making a mistake. Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. This is for when you're ready to be married. I recall a young man many years ago when I was in college that, that I warned him, others warned him, don't marry this girl. She's going to make your life miserable. You know what happened? She made his life miserable. And two decades later, she destroyed the whole family and left the family in shambles. Kids who don't know which way is up about anything in life because he wouldn't listen to wise counsel. So now let's do an I-do list for women. And now we're going to get to the text of Song of Solomon. This is a love poem about the true story of a young man and young woman. The young man is King Solomon. The young woman is a, a young lady he's known since they were children. I preached a whole series on Song of Solomon. I won't repeat it here. But for women, we're going to look at a little piece of chapter 1. The couple is still in the courtship phase. They're not dating for fun. They're not dating for amusement. They are looking toward marriage together. So here's four things on the woman's I do list. The first one is desire sanctification. Desire sanctification or Christ likeness. Psalm of Solomon chapter 1 verse 5. I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. So she's sunburnt. And by the way, considering that this is an ancient Near East culture where everyone is already brown, this means she is roasted big time here. The tents of Kedar were famous for their, their dark, rough tents of these nomads made from, from black goat skin. And so she says, I'm, I'm like one of those, like the tents of Kedar. But she also says, I'm like the curtains of Solomon. These are the dark curtains of the palace, dark blue, dark purple, fine curtains. So she's giving two sides to what's important to her. She's giving the fact that outwardly she knows she's not the most presentable woman. She's, she spends her time out in the field. She's burnt to a crisp. She's sweaty and she's, she's not presentable all the time. But inwardly, she says in verse 5, I am black and darkened, but lovely. It means inwardly pleasing. It means suitable. She's outwardly like the rough tents of the nomads. Inwardly, she's like the fine curtains of Solomon's palace. 
Now, this doesn't imply that godliness means completely abandoning all attempts to make yourself look presentable. That's another form of pride. But what it does mean is that she's pursuing the virtues of inner beauty. She's doing what Peter exhorts wives to do in 1 Peter 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on garments, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A young lady should desire sanctification over and above desiring a husband. And can I say this? If a young woman desires a husband more than she desires Christ-likeness, she's not ready to be married. And she'll simply replace those desires with other things. When her husband disappoints her in a year or five or ten or twenty, she'll simply replace it with other desires, other lusts. Ironically, pursuing sanctification, though, that internal beauty, that kindness, that maturity, that thoughtfulness, selflessness, that servant attitude, that makes you highly qualified to be a wife, highly qualified to be a woman of substance and value. Here's second for the ladies' I-do list. Develop a work ethic. Develop a work ethic. Verse 6, again, Do not look at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me, My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. So ostensibly, she's the littlest sister and her brothers wanted to take a coffee break and said, you go work. And and, and they made her work. But that doesn't have a bad impact. She uses the metaphor of the vineyard to speak of her own body. She says, they made me caretaker of the vineyards. I haven't taken care of my own vineyard, my my own self. She's keeping the actual vineyards of her family, working hard in the fields. But there's one thing she's learned from all this. She's learned how to work. She's learned a work ethic. The righteous woman is a worker. Proverbs 31, 13, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. I tell young ladies, anytime I can get a listening ear that marriage is not about marrying Prince Charming so that you can be a princess. It's about being a helper, being a worker for your husband and for your family. And what's the result? Proverbs 31, 28, her children rise up and bless her. As for her husband, he also praises her saying, many daughters have done excellently, but you have gone above them all. Done excellently literally means worked or labored with excellence. Here's third on the list, I do list for a, a young lady. Defend your heart until the time is right. Defend your heart until the time is right. Chapter 1, verse 7. She says, Tell me, O you, whom my soul loves. And she's about to make a request, which I'll get to in a moment. This is the first use of a pet name in Song of Solomon. Basically, she calls him my love. And she calls him this 23 times in the poem. This isn't an infatuation. This isn't a crush. This isn't an emotional blip on the radar. This is her considered, careful decision to give her heart to precisely one man. So how do you defend your heart as a young lady and really as a young man as well? Don't allow feelings to be your primary guide. I know that's difficult, but feelings will lie to you. Feelings are not loyal to you. They're not your friend. They're not loyal. 
They're good. They're eventually necessary. But things like, oh, he's cute. I think I'll give my heart to him. Or he's really nice. Or he's a good athlete. These are all surface evaluations. Because he's cute, he's really nice, and he's a good athlete. Probably all of those are going away eventually. (laughs) Instead, focus on doing the tasks which prepare you for marriage. Learning the word of God. Becoming a godly woman. Learning to serve others. Have a high standard before allowing yourself to become interested, including how far along is he on his I-do list. I, I, I believe young ladies should be almost, almost an unattainable goal. The young men around her should say, I don't even know how to get close enough to say hi. Unattainable. You guard your body Touch is extremely intimate. It forms an emotional bond. There should be one man who becomes familiar with you. The one who's committed his life to you. Listen, Song of Solomon chapter 8 gives a nickname to a young girl. She's called a wall to keep everyone out. Here's a fourth part on the I do list for a young lady. Decide to follow your husband. Decide to follow your husband. Verse 7, tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you shepherd your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She wants to meet him where he's pasturing his flocks. The middle of the day is when it's the hottest. Everyone slows down a little bit. I want you to notice two things. First of all, she goes where he is. She follows him. And secondly, in exchange for following him, she desires to be special, to be exclusive. Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Why should I be like all those flirtatious young women who are all over the place trolling for a husband? She says, no way. I'm not lowering myself to try to catch you with allure or surface beauty. Instead, she's saying, if she will be special to him alone, then she'll be devoted to following him. We live in a culture that has screamed in our faces that the Bible is wrong about marriage. In the Bible, husbands have a clear responsibility from Scripture to love, to protect, to care for their wives. And wives have a responsibility. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 22. Why is this the case? There's two simple reasons. Created order and created purpose. The created order... 1 Timothy 2, 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's God's created order and created purpose. Genesis 2, 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so for young ladies, if you haven't gotten this straight in your minds, in your hearts, if you haven't made a determination that you will obey God's created order, then don't ruin a man's life by deceiving him into marriage. Instead, decide, I will be a woman who understands two of the most godly words I can say in a marriage. Yes, dear. You know that Christians are called to submission and there's only one area of submission that is optional and that is for wives. It is optional for a woman to submit to her husband. Did you know that? You don't have to submit to a husband. Don't get married. And you don't have to submit to a husband. Let me give you an I-do list for men. Turn a page over to Song of Solomon chapter 3. We're at the wedding scene here. Here's the wedding scene. 
Chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke as rising incense of myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are those who seize the sword, learned in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the dreadful things of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go and see, O daughters of Zion, King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Here's an I-do list for men. The first one, very complex. Be a man. Be a man. Verses 7 and 8. Look at all these men who are around Solomon. Men who are respected. They serve Solomon and whom Solomon undoubtedly respected as well. These are mighty men. They're wearing swords. They're expert in battle. They're ready to defend their king and their country. These are men who had probably fought alongside Solomon's father, David. And what about Solomon himself? He was a man of courage. He was a man of conviction. He was clearly placed on the throne by his father, David. The first Kings 2 records that his half-brother, Adonijah, tried to trick his way into taking over the kingdom. And without hesitation, Solomon had his brother executed on the same day. That took courage. Manhood is about taking responsibility, which means sometimes taking risks, doing difficult things, doing hard things. The goal of a godly man is not to try to make life as easy as possible, but to take on challenges and to conquer them. It's not a surprise that our culture is trying to redefine manhood and and feminize men. Men are to be masculine. And when I was growing up, we made fun of men who were feminine. Now they're elevated as heroes. Part of preparing yourself for marriage is to take on and face and conquer great challenges and obstacles. And listen, I don't mean obstacles that take days or weeks. I don't mean like go in your backyard and, and dig a hole that's four feet deep. No, obstacles that take months or years. One of the values of, a, of an extended education is to prove that you can go over this massive mountain of a challenge or the value of going to trade school or starting at the bottom of the ladder with a company and working your way up, demonstrating that you can achieve. A man's life is meant to be a life of achievement, of doing things, of accomplishing things, of facing and conquering challenges. Second on the man's I-do list, be a leader. Be a leader. Solomon was a leader of men. And some would say, well, this was handed to him, but he did have to earn it. First Kings 3, he demonstrated his leadership. He demonstrated his wisdom. You recall the two women fighting over the one baby, both claiming the child to be theirs. And Solomon said, cut the child in half and give each woman a half. That's a courageous call. The real mother said, no, give the, woman, the other woman the child. The fake mother said, no, kill the child. He earned his right to lead. Now, not all men are going to lead lots of people, but every man is called to be a leader at some level. For young men, here are some ways to lead now. Lead yourself. Make yourself do something that no one is asking you to do. If you're, if you're an older teen and, and the only reason you do hard things is because your mom and dad tell you to, 
then that's not leadership. Leadership is leading yourself. You lead by serving, being available to serve your family, serve one another, not waiting to be asked. There, there, is a, there is a switch that flips from boy to man. Men serve without being told the, what the need is. They just serve. How about lead by learning about leadership? Every time you encounter a leader in your life, every time you encounter a leader in the church, a leader certainly in Scripture, ask, what is he doing? Or lead by taking opportunities to be in charge of something, even something small. I've seen some of the teenage boys in our church in charge of moving a stack of chairs from over there to over there. You would think that it was D-Day and they were leading an invasion. It's glorious to see. All right, men, you, 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 and you. You're going to get that chair. You're going to move over here. Watch for the carpet. Watch out for the ladies. And they're just there. It's awesome to see. Because they'll graduate from leading the chairs to leading others. Why is this important? Because it's really very simple. As a husband, you're called to lead your wife and your children, and you won't suddenly develop the ability to do that. Putting a wedding ring on does not zap you into a leader. And if you're not a leader, you'll become a passive husband who gets led instead of leading. Here's third on the men's I do list. Be a provider. Be a provider. Let me read again. Verse 9. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seed of purple fabric, with its interior inlaid with love, love by the daughters of Jerusalem. What do you notice about Solomon here? He's not going to his wedding on a bicycle. He has a carriage. He has stuff. He has things. Yes, he has inherited those things, but he has them. Young men, you need to have something to offer before you can expect a young lady to commit her entire life to you. You need tangible things. You need a car. You need a place to live. You need a job. You need a plan for your life. You want to prove that you're ready to be married? Show your bank statement to her father, and it has five figures. And your, her father's going to go, all right, not bad. Many young women have ruined their lives because they marry Prince Charming, comma, useless. He's handsome, he's sweet-talking, but he's worthless because he's never done anything hard to earn. I, I know it's a cultural idea, but it serves a, a godly purpose. The engagement ring says something tangible. It says, I can buy something. I can earn this. Now, like in our case, our engagement ring was, did you know diamonds come in two-dimensional types, the type that you can only see from one angle? But I earned it. Ladies, don't make promises. Don't marry promises, rather. Don't marry potential. Marry a hard worker. Run from someone who's never on time. Run from a young man who's lazy. Run from a young man who doesn't get things done when he says he's going to. Run from a young man who's never finished anything difficult in his life. And one more for young men. Be accountable. Be accountable. Verse 11, go forth and see, O daughters of Zion, King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him. She crowned him on the day of his wedding. She gave her consent, her approval. Now, this is very interesting because Proverbs chapter 31, the poem of the excellent wife is a poem almost certainly written by Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, to tell him what kind of woman he should marry. And so I want you to notice something. What his mother thought was important to him. He wasn't at the age of 20, all-knowing and all-wise in his own mind. And here's an interesting thought. 
Who was the wisest man who ever lived? Solomon. Yet he still cared what his mom thought. He still took godly wisdom from others. If young men can't take wisdom and instruction of those around them, if you don't want to be accountable, to be sexually moral, to, to be wise in your choices, to not follow your emotions or your hormones, you're not ready to consider a real adult relationship. The best thing you can do for your future wife is to pursue Christ-likeness now, pursue godliness now, learn the Word of God now, be accountable now. So it's a pretty simple list for men. Be a man, be a leader, be a provider, be accountable. I want to point one last thing out. Very slowly, over the past few minutes, you've noticed, with very few exceptions, we're not even talking about lust or sexual immorality anymore, are we? You know what we're talking about? We're talking about pursuing Christ. Pursuing holiness. Because if you pursue Christ and you're pursuing holiness, then you, you happily pluck out the eye that's hindering you. You happily cut off the hand that's distracting you from holiness. It's a joy. It's a relief to you. There's no sacrifice there. We got holy and completely focused on things that are heavenly and good and righteous, and we weren't even talking about lust anymore. That's the secret. I pray for all of you. I pray for our church as a whole. My prayer for our whole church is that Together, we're pursuing righteousness because our righteous Savior deserves no less from us. Amen? Let's go to the Lord together. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious Lord's Day. We have sung glorious truths. We have read glorious truths. And we have fellowshiped with a glorious church, the Bride of Christ. Lord, in a church setting, it really only takes one immoral person, one open act of immorality, of adultery, to just bring sadness and despair to the entire body. And so, Lord, I pray for the purity of this body. I pray for the marriages, the new marriages, the older marriages. I pray, Lord, that all would be characterized by deep fidelity and loyalty to Christ, which is lived out in fidelity and loyalty to one another. May the intimate times enjoyed by married couples be sweet and tender and pleasing and exclusive. May the young men in our midst tame their minds to think on Christ. May the young ladies in our midst not bow down to the idol of a relationship as soon as possible. And may we as a church be characterized by purity, holiness, and loyalty to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.